you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Awesome. You guys may be seated. If you guys have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. As we begin our study today, continuing on the life, the ministry of Jesus, as he was here on this earth, teaching, preaching, and healing, Luke recorded this gospel from eyewitness testimony, gaining with insight from Mary, the mother of Jesus, from the disciples, the apostles, because he felt it necessary to document what Jesus had done in the lives of mankind while he was here. Jesus, his ministry was primarily of preaching, teaching, and healing. You see, in Luke's gospel, Over the last two weeks, we covered chapter 6, and we saw Jesus give one of his most well-known sermons. It was the teaching on the plain, sometimes seen as the teaching on the mount, the sermon on the mount. And Jesus was sharing with his disciples, with the people, what the kingdom of heaven was like. In chapter 6, he taught us as believers that we were to be meek, to be righteous, to be broken, and to be set apart. He was exhorting the believers not to be greedy for the world, not to be full with sin or satisfied by sin. He desired that you and I wouldn't be joyful in iniquity And he warned us that we were not going to be loved by everyone. Some of Jesus' teachings were hard for us to take in as he told us to love our enemies. He told us not to judge. You see, the heart, it bears good and bad fruit. We were to be discerning of these things Jesus taught us. And he exhorted us to build on the rock. That would be Christ himself. To obey, to listen, to heed his teaching. And so Jesus now, he's continuing now in his life ministry. So this is where we pick up now. I titled my study today, if you guys are taking note, Powerful Faith. In Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now when he concluded all his sayings, In the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. These sayings being the preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, the Beatitudes. Now Jesus left that area and he's now entering into Capernaum, which is Jesus' main base for ministry. This town of Capernaum, we often see in the scripture Jesus going to this place to do a lot of ministry. It was sort of like his home base. In verse 2 it says, And a certain centurion's servant 
who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. You guys are going to see in the Bible as you go through it, especially in the, the New Testament, the, uh, the centurions were always honorable and even faithful men, always portrayed in the Bible in a, in a good light. A centurion would be a Roman officer in command of over 100 men, or of 100 men. It is noted in the Bible that a centurion watched the crucifixion of Jesus. And when he saw how people were attending the crucifixion and how miraculous that moment was when all the earth was turned dark, that centurion said, truly this man was the son of God. You see, this now centurion that Jesus is encountering as he's entering into Capernaum, we note that he has a servant who was dear to him, meaning he was a, a compassionate leader. He had a servant whom he cared for. A lesson for us to be servant leaders. And then in verse 3 it says, So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him pleading with him to come to him and heal his servant. So now the centurion hears that Jesus is going about preaching, teaching, and more importantly to him, healing. Now the centurion with his servant who is sick, close to death, he then sends these Jewish elders as to Jesus as a way to persuade Jesus with his own ethnic elders. You see, the centurion would be a Roman, a Gentile. So Gentiles and Jews really didn't have dealings with each other. They tried not to. There wasn't this mixing of fellowship with a Gentile. Now, because of this, the centurion sent the Jewish elders and as he's seeking Jesus in a few verses, we will realize that this centurion is humble and he thinks himself not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus, for Jesus to be in his own household. In verse 4, And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving for he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. So, as these Jewish elders are now coming to the centurion and pleading with Jesus, I'm sorry, coming to Jesus and pleading with him, they're asking on behalf of this centurion, they're begging Jesus that he would come to them based on the goodness of the centurion. Now, there is an error in that type of thinking. You see, they begin to ask Jesus, well, look at the centurion's wonderful works. He loves the Jewish nation, whereas most Romans were perhaps prejudiced and even racist towards the Jews. And he has even built us a synagogue, meaning that this centurion probably converted to Judaism which was the true religion of the time. 
And they're saying, look, on behalf of this man who has built a temple, do good unto him. But you see, that's not always how Jesus rewards us. You see, Jesus, God himself, owes us nothing. We can't put God in our debt. We can't do good and then say, well, you owe me one, God. For all that I've done, you, I deserve a little bit of goodness. I deserve this little piece of goodness in my life. God doesn't work. He doesn't relate to us based on our works. Remember in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 7, Jesus says concerning the last days, he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, we cannot live our relationship with Christ based on our works. It must be lived based on faith. It doesn't matter how many times we go to church in a week and all the ministry that we're involved in if there's not a real, true, intimate relationship with Christ. We have to live by faith. I read about an instant cake mix that was a big flop. The instructions on this cake mix said all you had to do was add water and bake. The company couldn't understand why it didn't sell until the research discovered that the buying public felt uneasy about a mix that required only water. See, apparently people thought it was too easy. So the company altered the formula and changed the directions to call for an adding an egg to the mix in addition to the water, and the idea worked and the sales jumped dramatically. You see, sometimes we think, oh, it can't be that easy. It can't. And we even do this with our own spiritual life. Getting saved can't be that simple. There's, it's got to be more complicated than that. But the Bible teaches us, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works. You see, we think at times it can't be so simple. And then we try to even take credit for the work. When we try to bring about God's goodness in our life by works, we often end up with the sad reality of our own failures and then we start to condemn and punish ourselves. See, there are times in a believer's life when we might feel, well, God, I've done it again. I failed you. So I'm ready just to just have a terrible day today because I failed you, God. I'm, I'm ready, just, just, just strike me now. We feel that way sometimes. And we deserve sometimes that think, Sometimes we think we deserve to have a bad time in this life. And then we just get into this harsh self-condemnation 
and it turns into a cycle. The condemnation leads then to more condemnation and more sin, and more sin leads to other sins and failure. That's because we are looking at ourselves. We aren't like Paul, looking unto Jesus. Remember Paul, what he said? He struggled with this idea. He was a a man plagued with his own human nature like we are. He said, the things that I don't want to do, those sinful things, those things I practice. And the things that I want to do, the good, righteous things of God, those things I don't do. Who can save me from this corrupt body? And he said, thank Jesus, our Lord. Do you really know that Jesus loves you? Do you really know that he loves you? Can you take that truth in right now? That as you're sitting here, Jesus loves you. If you accept that Jesus loves you, you could accept that if Christ lives in you, you are accepted by him. There's then no more need to try to live up to the expectations that this world and your own sometimes fleshly mind puts on yourself. But you can love your neighbor as yourself, as the Bible teaches. And allow that grace to then lead you rather than this condemnation which just leads us to busyness and anxiety and stress. See, many times that's what we try to replace the relationship with Christ with. We, when we feel that we're far from God, instead of getting back into that place of, all right, Lord, let me hear from you. Let me pray to you and let me read my Bible and put on some worship music and have that personal relationship. Sometimes we try to replace that with works. Oh, let me serve. Let me serve right now. That'll get me in a better spot with Jesus if I'm busy doing work. Later on, we're going to read about how Mary and Martha were there with Jesus and his disciples. And Martha was busy trying to take care of all the the household things, cleaning and getting the food ready and staying in the kitchen and cleaning things so that she could better serve Jesus and his disciples. And she saw that Mary was at Jesus' feet just worshiping him. And then she went over to Jesus and was like, Jesus, why don't you tell my sister to come help me? I'm so stressed with all the, the, the busyness of serving you guys. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, Martha, Martha, she has done the better thing. She's just worshiping, loving, in that personal relationship. He told Martha that she was worried about many things. Sometimes that can happen in our life. We get so busy, we just start worrying about trying to make things good. Sometimes with the best intentions, trying to have a good life, a righteous life, but we go about it in a way of works rather than a way of grace and faith. 
May we be like Mary, just worshiping at Jesus' feet. Back in our account, the Jewish elders were seeking that Jesus would help their centurion friend as his servant was sick. And as they're pleading with him, it says in verse 6, Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I do not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. In these verses, we see the humility of this Gentile centurion. His hesitation of allowing Jesus into his own house was from the culture around him of the Jews and the Gentiles, again, not intermingling. But Jesus worked through this. Again, at the end of verse 7, it says, But say the word, and my servant will be healed. And verse 8, For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion gives an illustration now to Jesus. It's quite interesting how he does this. He says, Jesus, don't come to my house for I understand authority. And then he goes on to give him a very insightful illustration of what authority is. See, authority is the power of choice. You see, him whose will and commands must be submitted to by others and obeyed. This is authority. And the centurion understood this because he had a hundred men who obeyed and followed after him and servants. And he too himself was under the authority of his commanders and superiors. So he says to Jesus, just command it. Be so please Jesus and it shall be done. He understood that Jesus had authority over life, over sickness and over disease And I wonder if he knew that Jesus even had authority that reached to the far greater matters over death, the grave, soul, and eternity. Do you know this morning that Jesus has authority over your life? In Matthew 28 verse 18 it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In that verse, the word for workmanship, it's the same word in the Latin, the Greek, I'm sorry, the Greek as poema. 
It's where we get our word poem for. We are his craftsmanship. Something that God himself has designed to make beautiful. Created in Christ for good works. And God is preparing us. He has a plan for your life. Jesus has authority over your life. And if Jesus has authority over your life, trust him. Trust his authority. Sometimes we think that the trials that we're going through are completely from the enemy. We believe that the trials that we endure are from Satan. And we forget that Jesus still has authority over our life. Perhaps many times the trials that we're going through are allowed because God desires that we are made into a more holy, righteous, and strong instrument of the Lord. May we allow him to perfect that work in us. You see, he who started a work is faithful to complete it. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Whoa. Jesus is looking at this Gentile and saying, wow, this guy's got greater faith than the Jews that I've come across. You see, the current generation that Jesus was living in had Jews who had been weakened in their faith. The Israelites as a nation had been through much hardship. Remember, we're Wednesday nights, we're learning about the captivity of the Israelites there in Egypt. And then God showed himself to be strong to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the Israelites learned how powerful God is. But then as that generation passed and generations came, they forgot about their God. Though he was with them through the wilderness, when they finally got to the promised land in Israel, many times they would turn to idolatry, forgetting about the true living God. And most of the time it would happen when they were living in a time of prosperity And it was in a time of hardship that they turned back to God. God would allow them to be captured by other nations. And then they would repent and God would deliver them. And this happened in a cyclical way where you could see it throughout the Old Testament. And then finally, after the last book of the Old Testament, there were 400 years where God stopped speaking through any prophets to his people. There was no word of the Lord, no revelation. So people began to lose hope. And it was not until the New Testament, until John the Baptist came on the scene, heralding the coming of the Lord Jesus. The Jews almost forgot the faith of their fathers. And their succeeding generations, they tend to drift. Yet this Gentile centurion showed a faith 
that was greater than any Jesus had yet encountered. What is faith? It's a word that we use every day, but sometimes we kind of forget the meaning. We take it for granted. It's like, I've got faith. What's faith mean? Faith is faith. (laughs) It's simple belief. Belief in something to be true. Now, faith helps us in all sorts of ways. In Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. You see, faith creates hope. And what is hope? Hope is an expectation of something good. Now, our hope, expecting something good, comes from faith, that belief. It's that proof of the things that are spiritual, things that are in the kingdom of God that we cannot see. And even the non-believer begins to believe because of the faith of those who do believe. Right now, this church, Redeem Church Fellowship, we're walking in faith right now. We are taking a step of faith, and I mean that in the literal sense. I, I said this a week and a half ago that we were looking at this unit over in, in Glendora. And there was a... We weren't sure if we were going to get it. There was some uncertainty in it. But more recently, we, we've received approval for this location. And the, this lady who is a Christian... She's trying to help us, which is awesome. It's like the Lord had had two, myself and, and her, meet up over the phone. He's bringing this all together. Now, being a, a nonprofit is not ideal for this little retail spot, for them, personally, for the, the people who are giving the lease. But because this woman is a Christian, she's you know trying to help us out. And financially, this is going to be a step of faith for us as a church, for myself and for everyone here. And if the plan doesn't happen, that's all right. You see, God is going to provide and where God is guiding, he's going to provide. And if God wants us to go somewhere else, he's going to close those doors for us. This gives us peace in in moving forward. You see, God doesn't change. He's guiding. And if he wants myself to stop or us as a church to stop, if he wants us to turn left or to turn right, then that's what we want to do. To walk by faith. See, faith is followed by action. Now, we're not saved by works. But our works, they are evidence of the faith that we have. We learn about this in James. He says, oh, some people say 
that you know that they have faith based on their works. And he's like, no. Or faith without works is dead, James will tell us. He says some people were saying, oh, well, I have faith, others have works. So I have faith, but I don't have to work. And some people are saying, well, I have works, but I don't have faith and we're both good. And James is saying, no, you need both. You see, the works is evidence that there is a relationship with Christ. So has God put something in your path requiring faith to have action? I'm sure if you are a child of God, and I believe you are, that he has done this. It's the nature of even salvation that God has given you a path requiring faith to have action. So ask God that by the power of his Holy Spirit, that he will give you the faith, the courage, the determination to obey him and with him lead and guide your life. This is what we are pressing on to. And I'm excited for it. Look at verse 10. And don't worry, we'll keep you up to date on all the dates that are coming <laughs> forth with that. It's not going to happen next week. But you guys could pray for us on this. Join us in prayer. In verse 10, And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. You see now, the miracle. The centurion was asking for his servant to be healed and it's happened. Matthew's gospel gives us a little more insight on this very same account in Matthew chapter 8, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. You see, he told the centurion, as you have believed. The healing was not based on works, but on faith. So let it be done. Again, to say so let it be done, Christ is exercising the same power and authority that he had when he formed the earth, the heavens, and creation. In John's gospel, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. It says, And through him all things were made. And then it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning the word is Jesus becoming flesh. So if Jesus was there at the beginning, and he created all things, when God said, let there be light, Jesus was creating the light. When God said, let there be stars, a sun by day, a moon by night, Jesus was creating all of this. Think of the great sea creatures, the dinosaurs that scientists pull up their bones on. Jesus created all life. And then he created Adam and Eve. That same power that Jesus had to create everything, he used to heal this 
centurion's servant. You see, Jesus can heal you. Are you sick? Jesus is a healer, a provider. He loves us. Continuing in verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him with a large crowd. Now at this point, many besides just the 12 disciples began to follow after Jesus because of the miracles and his teaching. And then in verse 12, And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. Now, if this dead man is being carried to his funeral, understand that he probably died that day. The culture and tradition of that time was if someone was to, to pass, they would be buried the same day that they, were, that they had died. So the Jews were probably about to bury him after he had just passed away. And we have this mourning widow now being stripped of both her late husband and now her only son. So the sorrow was great. There was much mourning in this widow's life. The large crowd even shows that this man who passed was respected by many. It says in verse 13, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. I note here the the compassion of Christ. We often see how Jesus had compassion on his people. That he would look out at the multitudes and that he would look at them and be moved with compassion because he would see that they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he would see these and realize and tell his disciples that the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he would encourage his disciples to pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. See, that's you and I. And may we be praying that the Lord would continue to send more people, more laborers to help the weary and scattered sheep. You know, sheep is it's a great illustration of what we are to the Lord because sheep are stupid. Sheep, as you watch them coming to a cliff, if a few of them begin to fall off accidentally, the other ones look at them, see them jump and say, follow them. And they all begin to jump off the cliff to their death. And then eventually the ones on top just bounce off and they don't die. But sheep, they're, they're not intelligent animals. They need a shepherd. And then they're, they're helpless amongst predators. When a wolf comes, they can do nothing but bleat until the wolf gets them and then they they go silent and they get quiet and get scared and they die. They need a shepherd. They need someone 
to care for, to lead them to water, to food, to give them protection from predators. So Jesus, when he looks at us, he sees us as men and women who need to be fed spiritually, who need fulfillment, who need protection from things that would harm us and take us to our death. Jesus has compassion for his sheep. And he has compassion now for this poor widow who's lost her son. So look at what he does in verse 14. It says, Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Wow. This is now a revival, a resurrection that Jesus performs in the life of this man who was dead. I notice in verse 14, the first thing Jesus, is, Jesus does is he touches what is unclean ceremonially. He puts his hand on the open coffin. You see, that wasn't, by the religious ceremonial laws proper. But Jesus did that. And then Jesus is speaking to this dead man as though he was living. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, it says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This is our God, Jesus. You see, I remember in the past, before I became a believer, that my mother was perhaps one of the most fervent prayer warriors when it came to my salvation. And I know that Jesus had compassion on a mourning parent who was losing her son. And I recognize that Jesus knows your heartache. He knows your trial. He sees he is a healer. For that family in financial struggle, Jesus cares and is able to provide for you. Remember that even Jesus said, that, look, I, I care for the birds. They don't freak out and they're not anxious worrying about their next paycheck coming. But I take care of them. How much more so will I take care of you whom I love dearly? So he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. For the young man or young woman in a heartbreak, or maybe they're not young, for those in heartbreak, Jesus knows that you have need. He loves you and has even a better plan for you. For the parent or family member going through the suffering of a lost one, and Jesus can bring you peace and he is able to even bring life to that which is dead. For the struggling sinner, Jesus gives you strength and victory and has made you more than a conqueror. You see, all of this is pointing back to Jesus. 
I'm remembering of, of the seven I am statements of Christ, which is one of the greatest studies that a, a believer can do is to go through John's gospel and underline all the times where Jesus said, I am the. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, meaning he will fill us with his righteousness, his life. Jesus says, I am the light of the word, the light of the world. You see, sometimes when we feel that we are in darkness, so much confusion going on, we need light because light is revealing. It brings truth. Jesus says, I am the door. And sometimes when we feel that all the doors are closed around us, Jesus says, come after me and I will be your door. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he who abides in him will produce much fruit. Those are those good works. In verse 16, as we finish our study for today, it says, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. You see now, as this miracle has been performed, the, the man who was once dead is now made alive. Go, glory is given to God. And they began to say that Jesus was a great prophet risen among them, that God had visited his people. Which is interesting because Zacharias prophesied of this verbatim. When John the Baptist was born, his father Zacharias was a mute, if you guys remember that account. And when John finally was birthed, they were asking Zacharias and his mother, what are we going to call your son? And they were, the mother was saying, we're going to call him John. And they explained, looked at the mom and they're like, John, no, no one in your family's named John. Why are we going to call him John? And Zacharias, who was a mute, grabbed a tablet and he wrote on it, his name is John. And as he walked to the people and showed them the sign, he said, his name is John. And he spoke now for the Lord has loosed his tongue and he was able to tell them. And then after he was able to speak, he then began to prophesy. And in Luke chapter one, verse 67, it says, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And as he prophesied, I wonder if he knew that the same people, Israel, were going to say the same words about Jesus, saying God has visited his people there in verse 16 and redeemed his people. You guys know how I love that idea of redemption. That we are redeemed people, meaning that we have been bought at a price. The price of Jesus on the cross. He paid it so that we can belong to God, belong to Jesus. 
so that he can fill us, use us, so that we can be his good pleasure for good works. This morning was a study on faith, not living based on works, but to allow God, to allow Jesus to give you that faith, to encourage and strengthen your faith. Because you see, once we're saved, then we're called to be his good pleasure, meaning we're now signed up for his army. We're not just saved and that, that's it, okay, we can live our happy lives and just wait for the rapture. No, there's so many more plans that God has for you. And sometimes we think, oh, well, how can God use me? But you know what? God uses you because you are you. Because he has formed and fashioned things about you that nobody else has. And God desires to use you. So may you open yourself to him. And this week, may you walk forward in that grace, just knowing that Jesus loves you. And he accepts you. Let's all stand. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, to to pray and ask, Father, that you would increase our faith. Help us to believe, Lord, even when we don't see it. Father, I pray and I ask that you would continue to provide for us. Lord, help us to be rid of of sin and a works-based relationship. And may we just grow, Father, to be more pleasing to you. I pray, Father, for those struggling right now, those in trial. I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower them to have peace and to continue to obey you. Father, would you bring in our life your good works, not by our own strength, but by your might. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you guys would like prayer after this worship song, go ahead and come up and talk to myself, talk to my father. We would love to pray with you guys and just chat it out. That's the end of the song. Trust what you say That you're good And your love is great I'm broken inside I give you my life I may be weak But your spirit's strong flesh may fail my God
Wednesday night. Have a great week. We love you and God bless.